0: This podcast is reserved for audiences 18 years and older. Hello, and welcome to Leather Talk with Mr. Bullet Leather 2020. I'm your host, Brandon. Our next guest has been in the leather community for 30 years. He's the founder and missionary of the Onyx Men of Color Leather Organization and holds the titles of Onyx Leatherman 1997 and Mr. World Leather 2006-2007. Now, this is the first episode in what will be a two-part series with today's guest, So make sure to stay tuned next week. With that said, let's sit back, relax, and get ready for some more Leather Talk. This is Brandon, your Mr. Bullet Leather 2020, and today we have Mufasa Ali. Hi, Mufasa. Hey, Brandon. How are you? (laughs) Pretty good. How's it going over there?
1: It's wonderful. Wonderful.
0: Nice, nice. Mufasa, for those audience members who might not be familiar with you, would you mind just telling us a little bit about yourself?
1: Yes. uh, I'm Mufasa Ali, and I am a a male, cisgender male, uh, gay, cisgender, uh, same gender-loving male, as I Term it. Mm-hmm. And uh, I have been in the leather community for about 30 years and am the founder and visionary of Onyx, Onyx, the Men of Color Leather Club. Mm-hmm. And also uh, was Mr. The Onyx Leather Man 1997 and Mr. World Leather 2006
0: 2007. Awesome. awesome. And you'll have to tell me a little bit about. The Mr. World Leather later on, because uh, that's something I'm definitely not familiar with. Um, But let's get to know you a little bit more. How long have you said you've been in the community for? About 30 years. Cool. So let's talk about your origins a little bit. You said you identify as a same gender loving male. When did you first discover that about yourself?
1: I think in my teens, when I started kind of looking at penthouse And Playboy magazines, you know, (laughs) as teens often do. And I realized that I was leaned more toward Penthouse. And Mm. I was wondering why that was. But I realized in the pictorials, in some of the pictorials in Penthouse, they had males. Mm. They had females and males together, and not just females like Playboy did. And so I started exploring Uh, In New York City, uh, I grew up in New Jersey, and New York City was just a stone's throw away. Yeah. And uh, in the 70s, I started to explore New York City and bathhouses and places that (sighs) Uh they didn't card much then. Okay.
0: (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Okay. Wow. Um. (laughs) So I
1: was able to go. And in New Jersey, our licenses were, we had no pictures back Uh then. And our licenses, red, were just paper licenses.
0: So it was just like the Wild West over there.
1: It was wonderful. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay, so let's talk about, oh, you jumped right in, so let's go for it. I mean, so New York, a stone's throw away, you're like, in your teens. What was your first bathhouse experience? like? And how old were you at the time?
1: I was probably 15. Uh, and I was just, just a voyeur, pretty much. Uh, I, I enjoyed the sauna and the hot tub and all of those amenities that were there. And most often, because I was there in the daytime a lot uh, because of school, I would go over on school holidays oh. most often. And I would uh, just hang out, you know, watch public scenes, do the water stuff the okay. pool or the sauna and the hot tub and just kind of observe and be around because I think I usually just got a locker, not a
0: room. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it was great. Oh my gosh. You you are so much more brave than I was. I, <laughs> I was like, I thought going to Jack in the box for lunch when I was 15 was like a big deal. <laughs> it
1: was great. It was great to explore. Uh, and the, Greenwich Village was a paradise in uh, I was able to buy Screw Magazine from the, uh, the stand, the newsstand. Yeah. And was able to just look at classified ads and kind of just explore that way. I'm an only child. Wow. So I just started to explore and understood that I wasn't alone. Mm-hmm. I never thought that I was the only one.
0: So let, let's talk a little bit about Greenwich Village. So this was like the gay mecca of New York at the time. Is that right?
1: Y- yes, it okay. was. Okay.
0: So is that still the case today? I, I've been to New York, but never as an adult. So I can't say I, I've experienced it. Like, how has that changed over time?
1: Gentrification mm-hmm. has changed it immensely. I, the, you, there, are still, uh, there are still gay men that hang out in the village because there are still bars there. Mm-hmm. Uh but it has changed immensely. A lot of the men's boutiques are gone, or all of them. Um, you know, the stores that catered to the to gay men are pretty much gone, replaced by nail salons and hair salons, and small Tony restaurants. So it's not the same at all that mm-hmm. it was in the 70s. Uh, it was the Mecca of everyone coming together. And if you wanted to find somebody or see somebody, all you had to do was walk down Christopher Street and you would probably run into them. Yeah. And uh, all night long, people were coming and going. And the trains, one of the train stations to New Jersey is right on Christopher Street. So people would come over from New Jersey and come right up into into the village and to eat or hang out. And you really never even had to go into a bar. You just basically were there and hung out by the river or the piers or outside of any of the bars, uh, many of whom, which are closed now. Mm -hmm. And it was just a wonderful experience.
0: Can you describe, like, what was your regular outing there at the village? I mean, what are the kinds of things that you would do? Are those the kinds of things that you could do today? You could,
1: but I believe, you know, due to the AIDS crisis and due to people moving away and due to gentrification, it's just not the same. Uh-huh. Basically, it was just a, a an outing of people uh, going, and I would just hang out. And I knew one of the guys who worked at one of the boutiques, and he also lived it over on Christopher Street. And so I would go to the boutique, say hey to him. He would get off work. We would just kind of hang out, go to his house maybe. Um, I wasn't much into the bars per se. Okay. Uh, At a young age, I didn't have my first drink until I was like 37. Oh my God. But I would go to bars to hang out with friends. Uh Uh-huh. But I came from a, a Pentecostal church background. Okay. And we didn't drink at home. So... It wasn't anything i missed in college there were drinks and things but i just never did it so it was just a basic outing to see people it mm-hmm. was just a party on the street it was seeing colorful people and saying hey to friends and meeting new people and just talking and just being alive it was just a wonderful experience
0: now i mean i have to and i guess that's a whole other topic of discussion we don't have to go too far into it but Um, I'm curious to know if you think that like, are there any other places like that that still exist in the United States today? Like, like a gay hub, but that hasn't been gentrified or kind of tainted by commercialism.
1: Um, maybe Wilton Manor in Fort Lauderdale. Mm -hmm. Um, because that's kind of a gay city in and of itself. Okay. I maybe West Hollywood. I haven't been there recently at all. Um, Boys Town in Chicago has changed innumerably. There are bars still there. Mm-hmm. So there are people out uh, at some of the bars, but the establishments on the street have changed immensely. No men's boutiques, no uh, Tchotchke shops, you know, those types of things. Yeah. So I very rarely, we very rarely go to, bar, to Boys Town here in Chicago mm. anymore for anything. And our bar that Onyx Midwest is associated with is not in Boys Town. It's hmm. north of Boys Town. So we don't really have to go there. I see. So we don't, I haven't been on North Halstead here in Chicago in eons because mm-hmm. there's just no draw there. Right. Unless there's an event at a bar that I have to attend.
0: Got it. Yeah, I was, I mean, I was thinking about this the other day and I like in some ways I feel like I was, I was born in the right era like, not the right era, but I was born in a great time, right? I mean, we have prep, we're we're post the height of the AIDS crisis. Right, like exactly all this stuff. Connecting with people, you know, outside of your circle is easier than ever before. But at the same time, like I was at the bullet bar. I hear I live here in North Hollywood. Yeah. And it was so funny. There's this I, I guess I won't say her name, but she she cracks me up. Love her to death. But I remember her we're sitting next to the bar and she's wearing like a spiker jacket and she goes oh, where do you live? I was like, oh, down the street on, you know, in this area of North Hollywood. And she was like, I miss the days when you had your drug dealer living down the street and you could just walk and all this stuff. And I was like, oh my right. God, like the, the the organicness of the areas that were once like, I guess, just like original, I don't know how to say it, but like the, the, the organicness of a lot of places has been i think changed by like you said gentrification and commercialism and my partner always says like the mark of gentrification is when you stumble across avocado toast like that's when you know your area is yes. going to get expensive
1: <laughs> yes and a lot of the restaurants used to be open 24 hours they're not open 24 hours anymore yeah and so it was the because they were lower i would say lower class areas that needed to be built up they were accessible mm-hmm. for uh the gay population and we moved in we did well we built it up and then other families or people coming back in from the s- suburbs who were empty nesters wanted to move back into the city and uh millennials i think have taken over yeah those areas uh because they're accessible right and no one wanted to live there before but I know when I first moved to Chicago, I was living in, in Boystown with a friend from grad school. Mm-hmm. And I told somebody at work, I worked downtown, and I told them, hey, you know, you're in orientation and people are asking, oh, where do you live and where do you live? And I told them where I lived. And they're like, oh, you know, like, <laughs> like it was no man's life. Right. It's only, you, you live it's over only there. It's <laughs> only a 20-minute train ride from downtown. Uh, right. And it was like no man's land, um, yeah. but it was kind of a little bit of a rough area mm-hmm. um, at that time. But now uh, buildings have been taken over, condos have been made, buildings have been torn down, new buildings have been built. They tore down the gay uh, bowling alley uh, and built a condo building on you know on that on that space. So people who wanted to live in the city and have access to the city but not live downtown. Because they were outpriced Mm -hmm. from living downtown as they're moving north, you know, moving north or moving even now south, where I live in Chicago, they're building new buildings that they had not built since the 60s and people and charging downtown prices yes we're trying to at least
0: <laughs> okay this is a whole other podcast episode i'm telling you because, like, yes we, so... can do it. we can do it <laughs> <laughs> i'm so passionate about this topic the, the 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 bungalows next door to my apartment which were like um very signature ones of la like these type of bungalows are being yes. torn down to build like this brand new high-rise um mm-hmm. you know quote-unquote affordable housing but how like only so many units are going to be affordable the rent's going to be like Three thousand dollars—it's like outrageous to me.
1: It is, Um, it is, and they are—they're building the new uh, Obama Center mm. near like four blocks, four blocks from me. Yeah, four or five blocks from me. So the area—it's not changing because I'm near the University of Chicago. But uh, I mean, so it's always, you know, the university is building new things, and the center is coming, and all of those things. So other people are trying to build things and outprice them and yeah, you know, those types of things. And so it's like, uh, no.
0: (laughs) It's like, and then, and then where do we call home anymore? Because like all of these places are being gentrified. (sighs) Okay. Well, okay. We're going to put a pin in that discussion because, (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. Okay. Uh, So I could not help, but hear you talk about how you grew up. In a Pentecostal home. And I'm curious to know what your spiritual journey is like. Cause I personally grew up Catholic. I went through like a whole other and I'll have to talk about this later on another show. But um, like what's your journey like with your spiritual life?
1: My spiritual life has been wonderful. I'm an ordained minister. Okay. Open and affirming ordained minister. <laughs> and so I found my people. I mean, there's tons of gay people in the Pentecostal church, uh, as there are in other churches. And I found my way. I I always sang in the choir. I knew that I was kind of called in my early thirties, called to ministry, but could not be ordained, didn't want to be ordained in my—I could have been ordained in, I believe, the church that I grew up in, Mm -hmm. the Church of God in Christ, and the particular church that I grew up in, because it was kind of about love and they knew me and they grew up there, but I didn't want that because of the theology. Huh. And I had gone, well, I subsequently, after I was ordained, went to uh, seminary and as well. And the church group that I'm with, which is headquartered in California, in San Francisco, in Oakland, uh, under Bishop Yvette Flunder, the Fellowship of Affirming Ministries, uh, she also came out of a Church of God in Christ background, a Pentecostal background. So a lot of the people who are involved come out of Pentecostal and Baptist and Methodist mm-hmm. and Presbyterian backgrounds, and have many different stories. And there's a book that's been written on the Fellowship of Affirming Ministries and how we have come together as an affirming, mainly African-American, fellowship of, men, of people and also have been ordained and serve with the United Church of Christ, which we are closely affiliated with because they are very open in their theology and very open in how they see things. And so our fellowship is very close to the United Church of Christ. So I'm serving as an associate pastor, executive pastor in a United Church of Christ here in the Chicago area. Um, so I couldn't be somewhere that wasn't open, right. but my spirit background also will never leave me, my spiritual background.
0: So. Am I right in thinking that your your home church that you grew up in was not open and affirming?
1: I think it was more "don't ask, don't tell." Okay, I mean the the common the common theology for the Church of God in Christ is that it is not that homosexuality is a sin, regardless that there are many homosexuals in the church, <laughs> um, and that it's a sin. So. But in my church that I grew up in, which was mainly a middle class, middle, uh, 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 upper middle class church, mm-hmm. kind of doctors, lawyers, teachers, and business owners, mm-hmm. I never heard that that I often see. at all. I may have heard it once or twice, you know, from the bishop, because our pastor growing up, but I didn't hear it. Like it wasn't every sermon. It wasn't drummed in it wasn't i was accepted i knew my cousin two cousins of mine were gay they were three years younger than me the organist was gay as long as you didn't show up you know with bloodshot eyes and smelling smoke or liquor and you know you had to wear sunglasses (laughs)
0: you know (laughs) so the the, like by book the you know religion or church itself on paper technically didn't like the theology wasn't there to support homosexuality, but your community itself really didn't like hammer that in is kind of what you're saying. Correct.
1: Correct. And when my husband first visited, he was ready kind of for a fight, you know, because Mm -hmm. he was coming as my husband. It was the first time that he was going, my uh, fiance or boyfriend at the time, Um, he was coming to visit the church for the first time and he was ready for a fight. But when he got there, you know, when we, got there. Uh, they're like, oh, come on in, you know, have a seat. Mm-hmm. You know, are you coming to dinner after church? You know, are... <laughs> they welcomed him with open arms. They asked me about him when I'm not there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they don't refer to him as my husband. But they'll say, you know, how's Bill doing? Right. You know, how are our, your sons doing? Mm-hmm. And they baptized, well, not baptized, christened or blessed, mm-hmm. as we say, um, our sons at the altar, wow, at my home church in New uh. Jersey, and so it was a, it's unconditional love, and'm I sit in the pulpit when I'm there because I'm recognized as a minister, as a pastor, mm-hmm. um, and a son of that church, you know, a a, a son and and there's no reason for me to bring shame to the ch- to their to the church they haven't right. done anything to me and a lot of things also i believe are even though unfortunately yes people spew hate from the pulpit but we don't have to accept that right you know there are also other avenues of accepting your spirituality and accepting yourself i know that the issue is that we trust those people yeah and we put trust in those people to guide us but you know what is the truth
0: (laughs) now growing up when you had this kind of dynamic like what how did you contextualize everything in your head like at one at some point you found out like okay i'm I'm gay and then in your mind you know that like the doctrine doesn't support that but your community hasn't really said anything like how like when you're growing up how Mm -hmm. did you find yourself like kind of okay with god or was that a whole journey
1: um it wasn't a journey Uh, i i think it was me understanding and coming into the knowledge that i didn't do anything to myself to cause me to be who i am Hmm. nothing was done to me you know i wasn't molested i wasn't you know subjected to conversion therapy you know i wasn't uh to non-gay camp, you know, I wasn't subjected to any of that. That wasn't even in the vernacular. Mm -hmm. And so as I grew into myself and understood and started to learn that there were other people like me and especially other people like me in the church, I grew to understand that it was okay to be me. Mm -hmm. How I navigate that is something that I had to, that was the journey. I see. How do you navigate it? Um, But as a young guy, as a young, boy i was more into sports and school i was more into i was a swimmer Um, i went to the ymca camp and ymca all the time uh was there on saturday programs was there for summer camp so i was swimming i was a student Uh, my mother was a teacher so you know education was a big thing uh church our choir was a big thing. We were well-known in the area and did a lot of concerts and had rehearsal on Saturday evenings. And a lot of the families knew each other. Uh, my bro- father had six brothers and sisters and all
0: the cousins were at the church Yeah, <laughs> growing up. Uh, so very well, a lot of connection, like the community is really connected. Yeah, a lot of
1: connection. My family, my father's family was one of the founding members of the church. Wow. Um, in the 40s, my grandparents, my, my grandmother um, went to another church in New Jersey, mm-hmm. but they lived right, we lived next to her pastor. <laughs> wow. So my grandparents bought the house right next to her pastor. and so. <laughs>
0: so your life is very infused with your spiritual kind of upbringing, it seems like.
1: Yes, it is. And I had to understand that there were people that were wrong.
0: And I understand
1: why the moral the theology is what it is, mm-hmm. but I also understand that after going to seminary, well, even before going to seminary, that some people are wrong. And there's misinterpretations, yeah. and there are interpretations to fit the need of the people <laughs> that are writing it. Yeah, um, And they're controlling.
0: I really appreciate you saying that it's a, like, it's okay to understand that some people are wrong. And I think that's the problem with, and I, I the reason why I'm spending so much time on this is because I really resonate with this story I, of like, I love
1: talking about it.
0: I, I feel like when we, when people who we trust and respect our whole lives, tell us something, we kind of take it as infallible knowledge and then yes. it can hold us captive sometimes.
1: Yes, Definitely. So and that's what yeah. I that's what my mission is to try to help people free themselves.
0: Now, how did you I mean, you yourself, I mean, I think you figure it out pretty early on. Like, this is where I am with my sexuality. This is where I am with God. Like, we get it. God and I are cool. But when your family found out, I mean, was there any uproar in the church? Did your? how did your family react?
1: Well, one, I never told them.
0: Oh, okay. Well, that's an easy one then.
1: My grandmother um, found a magazine, I think, Uh under my bed. You know, she was, we lived with my grandparents. And I I think, you know, I was sick from school one day or whatever. It was in her room, in her bed, in my grandparents' bed, whatever. And I think I left a magazine there. Mm. And it, it was, again, a very spiritual thing that my grandmother just said to me, you know, just be very, be careful. Um, Those were the only words I heard from her. Just be careful. Um, My mother, you know, was like, well, when are you gonna have kids? And when are you gonna do this? And when are you gonna do that? And that type of thing. And she would drop those things. And I would just look at her. I would just ignore them. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't, you know, I wasn't the type that, you know, there's, I'm like, there's no, you know, college is coming, this is coming. So i would just ignore it there wasn't and there wasn't any outing at church either i was dating a guy before i moved back to chicago because i went to grad school here Mm -hmm. before i moved back to chicago i was dating a a guy who again was in the church in the same denomination in philadelphia and so he would come up for Mm -hmm. events i mean it's only an hour hour and 15 minutes away from where i was and so he would come up and hang out with the folks our choir members and other friends, and I'm sure people, I'm sure the other folks knew we were in relationship, Mm -hmm. but it was never talked about. You know, we were just friends hanging out and those types of things. And unfortunately he passed before, just when I was getting ready to relocate to Chicago, but it was never a topic of conversation. (laughs) Wow. And so, (laughs) you know, and so there was never any large outing at church and i know there are other friends that have gone through agony and hell pure hell um if it was found out at church and put on a tribunal and put on the altar and all those types of things and i'm so grateful that i didn't have to go through that that i didn't go through that and that no one was i don't ever remember anybody even being called out for that if they did think it was an issue because our organist at a few times with, I think he was doing drugs at the time or something, but he was still a great organist. He would come to the organs like some Sundays after being out all night mm. and have dark glasses on. And it's like, <laughs> yeah, that's not, oh you know, and I think they talked to him, but they didn't talk to him in front of the whole, they didn't embarrass him mm. in front of the whole church.
0: Yeah. Um, and that's very biblical, a very biblical way of doing it. Right. Because does it? isn't it like. Uh, a thing where like you go to the person that you have the issue with and then bring at uh, second stage is you bring in a third party and then you can bring right. it to the community. Like that's like a very Christian thing to do. Right.
1: Yeah. I mean, but the thing is the community, if the community isn't really involved, you're the one that paying the organist or, you know, right. why right. is the community involved um, per se? But I think I also was going to say that I never really had to come out to anybody. I don't know. Yeah. yeah I never did. I just, never you just sat down you just did
0: you i I just did me yeah and
1: you know that was you know going to school doing those things and having i was a fencer um in high school and in college and after college for a number of years Mm -hmm. um and so i had my sport and i had family and friends that supported me and my relationships um and our children
0: now, what about your calling to becoming a minister? How did you come upon that, and what was that like?
1: I think it was funny because in my early 30s, right after I moved, it was late 20s, yeah, after I moved back to Chicago, I just, it was just an inner calling mm-hmm. that I just kind of sat down one day, and I ended up finding myself flat on the floor, um, like with my face in the ground in my bedroom, just like a surreal experience that you need to do ministry and tell people that they're okay. Yeah. And then the road to that was like five or six years because I started doing the school of ministry in my church that I belong to here, which was very, very much more conservative than the church that I came from, mm-hmm. but in the same vein. And uh, I sang in the choir, they were a recording choir, which they did albums and things. And I started the school of mint. They said you had to go through a school of ministry there. And I was doing great, doing, getting great grades in the school of ministry, the local school of ministry. And when they got to the part that said the only family was a man and a woman mm-hmm. and children, my spirit said, I can't do this. Wow. I can't be ordained here. And at the time, we were just getting into the internet <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay you know so you've got mail connect... aol right right
1: <laughs> exactly dial up modems yeah <laughs> <laughs> you know ringing you can't talk on the phone while you're on the computer.
0: right
1: <laughs> no self you know and i uh you know i i left the church that i was at and a friend of mine had invited me to United Church of Christ that he was at, he and his partner. And I went there. Um, well, actually, a few years later, I went there. But I met a guy, somebody introduced me, knew what I was going through, and introduced me to a guy in Texas who was starting a church fellowship or church denomination. He was also from the Church of God in Christ, okay. <laughs> the largest and that's the largest, if you're not familiar with it, it's the largest African-American Pentecostal denomination in the world. So it's very prevalent in the black community here in the United States. And so he also was a pastor, an a elder and had been ordained in the United, in the Church of God in Christ. Mm-hmm. And he was found realized that after marriage and after children that he was, you know, recognized that he was same gender-loving. And he was starting a new thing, uh, you know, uh, an open and affirming Pentecostal Reformation around, you know, uh, a denomination. Yeah. And I met him and talked with him and ended up going through ordination with him because he was already ordained and he ended up ordaining me. Then the next year, Bishop Flunder and two other gentlemen started the fellowship of affirming ministries and that back then it was called like fellowship 2000 and it was again people coming together her church was a united church of christ even though she was from a pentecostal background she found that they were open and you could do your own thing there mm-hmm. each church is independent and so they could still be pentecostal have their tambourines have their drums sing gospel and be a part of the united church of christ which is a very mainline white denomination and they founded that and i found someone else told me they're having this meeting convocation you should go in philadelphia and i went um met them met some other people from chicago found my home in my spiritual community even though we were across the united states we were now connected by internet by phone and continued and have been with them since then. so it's been over 20 years
0: Wow that
1: over 20 years that I've been with that denomination and I' that's where my ordination oh, they're not a denomination of fellowship, but that's where my ordination stands and we're able to serve different churches throughout the country, especially within the United Church of Christ. It was a journey to get to the ordination process, knowing that I, that's where I wanted to be, but only could be with people who were like-minded and understood, you know, understood that being same gender loving was a gift from God and not an abomination.
0: Wow. I love that you said that.
1: And my husband is Catholic, by the way.
0: Oh, really? Your husband A recovering, have
1: that. A recovering Catholic.
0: <laughs> why, why do we always say that? <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, it, it was... Um, And I I won't go too deep into this, but like you said, I'm a, I guess you could call recovering Catholic, but the first gay church I found here in North Hollywood is actually across the street. And long story short, it was was sort of just like a miracle finding it. It was the first time someone had told me, you know, you don't have to choose between God and gay. And that just it lifted something it just broke down some kind of wall that i had up my whole life and i was like wow no one has ever said that to me and going back now you're you're an adult now you've gone through this journey going to be a minister i mean do you have you encountered the younger generation coming through like have you had the opportunity to like share that message individually with with some people i mean like you were i, I feel like you were lucky like you grew up not worrying mm-hmm. too much about it i mean but like what do you say right. to somebody today going through that struggle
1: well i think that you have to you, you also have to get in your own mind um that theology is that i won't say not theology but um doctrine mm. is man-made okay and once you if you end up going to seminary you end up learning the history of the of theology and where men try to basically control people by doctrine. I see. And understand that the Bible itself, in its translation, in and of itself, it's a very hard book to read. And people want to read it like a, a preschool primer. Yeah. You know, and understand it and relate it to it was written for somebody two thousand people two thousand years ago. It wasn't written to us. Hmm. We're different people. <laughs> We've developed differently. Yeah. There are age old um, nomers, you know, age old uh, treat you know, treat people well, you know, these types of things. But women be silent in the church, you know. Right. It, <laughs> it, there's different, we're a different place right,
0: right. than they
1: were there then. And so you can't take it literally. It's and, metaphor.
0: And the other thing that kind of came across my mind over the last maybe 10 years or so is (laughs) there like, there's a couple things that was always used as as ammunition against, against me being gay. And it was, one of them was like, God is today, or God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we have to like go, if it's not in the Bible, we shouldn't, like it it doesn't exist. It's not a thing. Right. right? But my thing is, is that like, if, if it's being called a living word, right, then yes. that means something that's living is always growing. And exactly. Us as a people, like you said, we're, we're different people, but like if we're to say that like God is this almighty, all knowing, powerful, eternal, omnipresent thing, but then you're consolidating him into like this box that is the Bible and saying like this is the only truth and nothing outside of the Bible exists, well, then you're saying that like the grandness of God. Can only fit in this tiny book. And like maybe God doesn't change yesterday, today, and forever, but our understanding of who he is and what that is, it like can grow, can change.
1: Definitely. And you've said it don't put a period, you know, where God has put a comma.
0: Absolutely. We're living testaments. I mean,
1: it it basically says that. And so the story is not done. You know, that is an encapsulation of a story of a people how they overcame and how we have resurrection power how we can have new life you know in our lives and deaths in our life but re- be resurrected through it all and that's the story i mean that's the message of christianity it's not this controlling doctrine that says, you can't do this, you can't do that, you can't do this. I mean, that's what some of the doctrines say, but I understand when they were written that, you know, it was to control the people. It was to control their morals, what they felt were their morals at the time. But you know, God doesn't change, but people change. Right. And our knowledge of God and hell, which I don't believe exists, Mm -hmm. changes. It should grow as exactly as you said, it should grow and we should be able to, you know, go forward and not get stuck.
0: Absolutely. All right. So while we're on the topic of, you know, talking about like our understanding of God and spirituality and what that is, um, I mean, this is Leather Talk. So let's talk about like leather, right? I know you mentioned before off the record about like a spirituality and BDSM class. Can you talk a little bit about your involvement with that?
1: Yeah, I teach it at different runs across the country. Mm -hmm. And basically it's kind of bringing together your idea of spirituality and what you grew up with, with understanding the the highs of BDSM and Hmm. the intricacies of taking people on a journey and being responsible for them and the, uh, the headspace of letting go and what that look what is that like and your altar is the cross the the saint andrew's cross and the spanking bench and those types of things and so it becomes for many people who are deeply spiritual um a a heightened spiritual experience um an, an ecstasy experience and i want people to make that connection and understand uh that there is a connection yeah, that there it doesn't have to be an either or it's a both. It can be a both and.
0: Now, how did you come across? I mean, like, how did you make these kind of discoveries? Did you discover this on your own or were you mentored by someone else to kind of have this perspective? Um, I
1: wasn't mentored by someone else, but I found some like minded people. Mama Vi Johnson and Goddess Lakshmi. Are my mother and sisters and my leather family sister and my leather family and it seemed that in my leather family i've got a bunch of ministers <laughs> <laughs> okay. ministers uh, are people who are involved in ministry and it's just kind of like okay you know this people who are spiritual or kind of involved in ministry are drawn to bdsm and hmm. why is that and how does that come together And one of my sons uh, did his uh, Onyx demo. Uh, You could do a practical demo or a class type of demo. And he Mm -hmm. did a demo on spirituality and BDSM. And so I gleaned, we gleaned a lot of things together on the subject and was able to, I was able to create a class moving forward on the subject to bring that together for people.
0: Now, why do you think that? Maybe people who are deeply spiritual may have this kind of capacity to enjoy or connect significantly with BDSM. I think it's
1: because you're allowing yourself to go into another level, Mm -hmm. Um, allowing your mind to travel, allowing your mind to be free, as we do in, say, the Pentecostal Church, uh, and being filled with the Spirit or being, uh, you know, a static worship. That type of thing. And so you find yourself in this euphoric place, and BDSM takes us to, can take us to those different types of pleasure and pain places Mm. um, of euphoria and endorphins releasing. That's what I think some sense of spirituality does for us it helps us to release. And as we are consensual about our BDSM, we know that we are entering into this contract, or this place of play, or this place of uh, journey. Hmm. And I think that's why, you know, I really do.
0: I think it's truly fascinating, Mufasa, that like, (laughs) here I am, like, conflict my whole life with like, gay, BDSM, spiritual, all this stuff, try to navigate that. And then your story is like, well, I just like, kind of did my thing and like, let the world figure it out.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it it, it it could have been, you know, that I, I, I know that there were people who were deeply, who were, you know, in the same Pentecostal or denominations as, as, I, as I was, or even in the Baptist Church, I mean, and even in the Catholic Church. I mean, it, it I thought that it was just the Pentecostal Church, but it seems that it goes across the board. Yeah. yeah. And um, that people trusted as you said before they trusted people who were teaching them as gospel Mm
0: -hmm.
1: you know as bringing their the gospel to them and that this was right and that was wrong yeah and i never my mother never instilled that in me that what one thing was right and one thing was wrong it was just an understanding of who we are and that we may choose not to do as a family we may not choose to do this as another family does, or we may not choose to do that, but that doesn't mean it's wrong. It's, it may be right for that family, but not for us.
0: As you're navigating like the BDSM world, have you ever, um, encountered where like somebody from church sees you out at this class or this dungeon or whatever? And they're like, Oh my God, that's no, my minister. (laughs) Never. No. Okay. Um, well, I mean, I have seen, I mean, there are
1: people that know that I'm ordained, um, I see, you know, who come to our Onyx events and friends and things of that nature, then they're not in leather, um, but they're in the in the gay community. Mm-hmm. And uh, we know, I uh, know a number of people who are in leather and ordained or and still in uh, churches that are not accepting, you know, and that's their life here. And that's the other life there. And, I, and a lot of times the two never kind of cross. I see. And I've been that's been interesting. But even there are people, you know, in my. Uh, yeah, there are people that know and people that don't know. And it's never been an issue.
0: I think it's really cool that you're sort of like this living testament to the fact that it's okay to be all of who you are. And you don't have to give up any part of yourself to be one or the other. Definitely. Can we talk about your first leather or kink experience? Like how old were you? When did you first discover that about yourself?
1: I think I was in my mid Well, actually, it was probably high school, (laughs) (laughs) that I didn't understand what it was um, because I had this. I was drawn to this poster. I don't know if you ever, in, in I guess, in malls across the United States, they used to have these stores called Spencer Gifts, and they had posters and. Smoking pipes and
0: oh, like a novelty store or something. Yeah, it was
1: a novelty store. It, it had all these, you know, things in it, mm-hmm. and there was a poster that I just fell in love with, and it was a velvet <laughs> poster. <laughs> it was a poster with these velvet images on it.
0: Okay, and
1: it was this woman, kind of black exploitation Amazonian black woman, in a like a steel metal bikini holding the leash of a man Hmm. that was on all fours in front of her, like between her legs. Wow. And I fell in love with that poster and actually put it up on my wall. And I'm wondering, like, did my mother or grandmother <laughs> Did they ever, they never said anything, but I'm like wondering what they thought, but they didn't tell me to take it down, but I didn't oh have any, gosh. I wasn't into like teen heartthrobs or anything like that. Right. And I didn't have, my room was not plastered with posters or wow. anything. That was the only poster I think that I had ever put up.
0: Again, a brave kid. I would have never... <laughs> <laughs> And that was I was in high school like that. I'm pretty sure
1: I was in high school. Wow. So after that, I started expressing myself through clothing um, in my 20s. Um, I would le- I'd love leather pants. you know, leather pants and different types of clothing. that was an expression. Leather cuffs and things like that it, before I kind of even found the community per se. Um, I knew the community was at bars at clubs in New York City, but I was still too young to go to those types of establishments. But then I started to venture in to those bars once I was kind of in grad school and after, in grad school and after, and just observe. Right. Um, then I kind of found um, one of the leather bars was always having a dance party. And there were you know big dance parties at leather bars here in Chicago in the 80s. And I would attend the dances. You know, people would come dance and there were underwear parties and things of that nature. And since I loved to dance, I ended up meeting a friend on the dance floor who started to introduce me to the larger leather events, which there weren't that many at the time, but the larger leather events and um, started to, we started to play together and explore and that kind of launched it more or less hmm. because I was always like, even though folks at church or folks, friends would always like, why are you wearing that? You know, why are you why are you you're wearing leather pants? Or why are you wearing these things? And it was just an expression of fashion yeah. for me, but, but deeper, it was kind of a launch pad for me to get further involved in the community.
0: What was your first piece of leather?
1: I think it was leather pants Mm -hmm. and they were not straight. They were, they were like fashionable leather pants, Okay, fashionable black leather pants that you could wear with a sweater, you know, that you could wear with a sweater or whatever, things like that. Like in the late seventies and the early eighties, leather fashion, especially in the black community was, Uh was very prevalent. Um, Leather uh, trench coats, leather sweaters with patches of suede and leather, um, mm,
0: okay I they see go what with you're leather saying. pants
1: yeah. um, and those types of things
0: so at the time that was sort of like a launch pad has the significance or meaning of leather changed for you I mean do you look at it the same way that you did back then
1: um yes I mean it's expense it's expanded mm-hmm. for me but I never went in again thinking that I had to be cookie cutter and yeah. I think that was kind of the launch pad when we started onyx that was also the understanding that the cultural my cultural background of who i am Mm
0: -hmm.
1: also influences who i am as a leather man
0: let's talk about onyx um you're the founder yes so how did that come about all right so we're going to take a quick pause here and end our part one with mufasa ali for today Stay tuned next week to hear more about the beginnings of what is known today as Onyx Men of Color, as well as to hear more about Mufasa's own personal walk with leather. As always, you can find me on Instagram and Patreon as Leather Talk Mr. Bullet, and Twitter as Brandon Bullet LA. Don't forget to rate and subscribe. And as always, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay kinky.